He is indeed, and thank you, Larry, for that prayer. It was very good. And God's love is what we're looking at this morning. Um, we're starting to look at. We're going to be. We've been looking at it, and we're going to continue because uh, these, uh, this whole, this, all these chapters really, like I mentioned to you last time, grow out of the soil. The next five, well, we say the whole gospel, really, but Amen. the whole, the the whole five chapters, especially, are, um, as John puts it, the holy place and the holy holies. Almost feel like I have to take my shoes off to read this. It's really good stuff. Um, before I hand out our new notes, um, I wanted to finish. If you have the older notes, the, the last set of notes, um, the three pager introduction to the upper room discourse. Um, I want to finish. I realize we didn't finish all the rest of the themes. So I just want to touch. On those, we've been focusing really on number one, which is, uh, again, touches on, you might say, the foundation, the soil out of which all the others spring, okay? So it's the most important one, the most dominant one by far. I do want to touch briefly on the other uh, four there, and then hand out our notes, and we can dive into uh, first uh, 17 verses, I think, is what we're dividing this first section up in. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, well, let's one more time. Heavenly Father, again, uh, it is a joy to open your word. And, and as Larry said, um, we're humbled and grateful for not just what you're doing here in our little tiny fellowship here, um, but to think of the believers who are gathered, some are, uh, we have right. Uh, behind me this banner that reminds us about the persecuted church and I always think about in Sunday mornings how uh, the church uh, some some do meet on Saturday but uh, by and large the church from, from its very foundation from even the day of the resurrection itself uh, met on Sunday and, and uh, think about little uh, knots of believers meeting in places where uh, they have to sing quietly or, or speak quietly for fear of being discovered. Uh, th those are precious, precious fellowships, Lord, and you know, our hearts uh, go out to them, but also to other churches. And we've had freedom in this country to meet, uh, to hang a shingle out on the road and, and say, this is where we are, and to not have fear of, of uh, um, guards breaking in and arresting, arresting us or just disbanding burning the building down, things like that, um, at least not yet, but we, wherever your, your people are this morning, I just echo that, that you would open your word and especially capture our hearts this morning with your love. Um, this, this great uh, love that you have that is unlike any other kind of love, um, it is unmixed, it is uh, concerned with uh, it's not not a not a respecter of persons. Uh, it is concerned with everyone, and uh, 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 you have it's volitional. It's it's will driven. It's not based on your emotions, and uh, it's it's such a 
a challenge. It's on the one hand, it's um, it's life changing for us when we see it applied to ourselves and to our sin, but it's also a huge challenge and a rebuke to us in our pride when we don't live up to that, that high calling. And so um, this morning, um, I pray that you would capture us again with this, remind us of this, wash us in your word again this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, those, the last page of those notes, uh, the introduction, the upper room discourse, the themes, First one is one we've been looking at, right? And we step through um, uh, this. The first one says, Jesus is leaving, and they will need to love one another in his stead in the same way that he has loved each of them. We're going to unpack that even more this morning uh, in the notes. I've, I've, I've got a, a fairly long narrative that I wrote up to try to, to, try to capture this, this way of the cross, you might say, okay? Um, and we've looked at that, right? We looked at at uh, a number of the verses, and I think I actually missed that in our notes here, but um, just realized I made a little mistake in there, but that's okay. Um, we've looked at uh, um, verses outside of the discourse as well as verses in the discourse itself that talk about the love of God uh, and then how it's to be applied in Jesus' command to love one another as I have loved you, right? And, uh, and so, um, again, we'll, we'll unpack that more again this morning in our, new, in our new notes. Second one there is Jesus will be preparing a place for them to live with him and the Father. Uh, where does it say that in the discourse? A pop quiz for you. I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, what chapter? John 14. 14. 14. Okay. Yeah. Right. So John 14, 6, I think, is the eye and the way of the truth. And yeah. Okay. But uh, he, he starts by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Okay. And we're going to look at that. I mean, we, those are, those are, there's a lot of mountain peaks, a lot of seminal verses in, in these chapters, right? Um, monumental verses. But, of course, they have to be set in context. And uh, uh, what he's particularly saying to them there is um, follows what the devastating words that he had a few verses earlier uh, in chapter 13, I think it's 33, where he says, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Right? And then he, they're just totally, we'll look at it, not with his notes, but the next set. Totally devastated by that. And so he then goes on to explain, you can't come right now. Okay. Um, but the thing that they miss, okay, because that's all they hear. <laughs> they hear, I'm leaving and you can't come. Uh, and and then, then they hear, okay, well, you can come later. And well, we're confused about this. And you can hear that confusion in there. And you can hear their just their emotions. That's why he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Like, because they were. They were, they were just, you know, what? You know, it's a very emotional, we read it, it's sort of almost dispassionate when you read it. It can be, but, um, but man, they were really, really emotionally uh, all over the map. They went from 
happiness and pride coming in, you know, to this, to this devastating fear and, 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 and that actually they're on their way down to even lower uh, places emotionally. It's going to be a very dark time for them for a few days uh, while he's in the tomb. And the Lord knows that. And here's the critical point, okay? Uh, back, to, back to number one again, right? The soil uh, out of which this springs is that, is that while he has gone away into heaven to do actually several things. He, he's, he's not only preparing a place for them, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Okay, and, and by the way, that's, you might say, the effects, right, of his invisible, com the completion of his journey. They only see him leaving. They don't see him uh, uh, going all the way and sitting at the right hand of the glory, right? They don't see that part, but they do see the effects, you know, what, 40 some odd days later at Pentecost um, when, when um, the Holy Spirit comes, okay? So he's going away to prepare a place for them to live with him and the Father. <clears throat> and we know the same author who wrote this gospel also wrote the book of Revelation, right, at the end, where we find out a lot more detail about what this place looks like and the capital city of the new universe that God would create. And, uh, and it's not just a place for them, but it's a place for us as well. It's a place for all believers throughout all time. God is assembling a remnant of his people throughout all time and all different places, all kinds of different people to share an address with him, as dad says. I like that. You're going to have the same address as God. Okay. That's pretty cool. Number three. Jesus and the Father will send the Holy Spirit, I, maybe I've believed that already, um, <clears throat> to live with them and with all believers to help them what? Love. Love one another. Write the New Testament and build the church. So, in addition to love being a ma the major sort of, the major thread throughout these five chapters, there's another another theme, very strong strong theme running throughout these five chapters, and that is as the, the prophet here he is telling them what's about to happen, right in the future, he's, so I like to say, in, kind of informally, I almost put this in our notes and I may at some point, I don't know, but in these notes I almost put this in here preview of coming attractions right uh, it, may, it makes it you know what I mean by that, right? When you go to the movies and you see preview coming train. Um, but it, I didn't put it in there because it makes it sound like what's coming is really exciting and fun. And, well, I can't wait for that next, uh, you know, part two of this movie that I like or something, right? Uh, what he actually tells them is there's, there's a lot of trouble ahead, okay? In the immediate hours and days ahead, right, where the world is, the system is going to rejoice that you will mourn, but then you mourn and return to joy. That's the days between crucifixion and the, and the resurrection. But then on the other side of that joy comes an even longer prediction of the years ahead in which they will be persecuted. And, and those who kill them think that they're doing God's service. Okay. So again, love and prophecy or predictions of the future, coming attractions, if you will, are strong themes of running through all this. They do it coming storms. 
Yeah, but, uh, yeah, this might be a better way of saying it. Preview of, of coming storms, okay? the persecution. But he ends chapter 16 with an encouraging note, right? In this world, you will have tribulation. But what? Do not fear. Yeah. I have overcome it. You right. know, you're talking about the Holy Spirit coming. I was just thinking about that. We know we're aware of his ministry with us today. And the fact that he is doing that is proof of the fact that he is in heaven, that he has already successfully and victoriously defeated the sin. And all of those things build on one another. If they had not been fulfilled, we wouldn't have them today. That's right. That's right. It's good. It's good. Thank you. It's ongoing proof. You're right. It's ongoing, not just to the early church, but to yeah. us as well. Right? The Holy Spirit is that guarantee. Right? He's, he's, he's the, the evidence, if you will, of, yeah. of, of the invisible things, just your justification and other things that are going on in heaven. The intercession of Jesus, all of that on your behalf as well. The Holy Spirit is sort of that effect in your life. <clears throat> Number four, the world will hate and persecute them, but they are not to <clears throat> but they are not to fear because he will cast out the ruler of this world and overcome it. One of the things that we're going to learn in here too um, is is um, maybe this is surprising, maybe you kind of knew this, but um, we, when we look at the cross, we see the judgment of God of our sins, okay, on Christ, right? And that sometimes dominates our thoughts to the point where it eclipses other truths that not only is he judging our sin in Christ, but he's also judging specifically that system. And it's interesting because he's going to talk to us, talk to the disciples briefly about that. That the, the way he puts it is the ruler of this world is now being cast out, right? And we've already seen that in chapter 12. And he's going to, he's going to revisit that by saying that, that he, is, um, uh, he is judged, okay? The ruler of this, this world will be judged. Uh, the, the world, the system itself is going to be judged, and, and, and the ruler is going to be judged, okay? We don't we don't often think about it, but but the cross is really um, the the um, the place where God, more than anywhere else, God revealed just how evil that Jewish system had become. It was no longer run by God; it was now run by the devil. He was the the real man behind the curtain. Right? And Jesus had already told them that in chapter 8, where he says, you are sons of who? The devil. Right? You're following his way. In his desires, you want to do. You want to murder me. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. You lie and you murder just like he does. Okay? And so the, them putting him on the cross and screaming out, uh, we will not have this man to reign over us. His blood be on us and on our children is, is a judgment of God. Right? It reveals... The truth about that system. Okay, so that's an aspect of the cross that we learn here that we don't often think about in terms of the judgment of that system. And and <clears throat> when did the hammer actually fall? <clears throat> because Jesus even predicted it, right? He says that, that not one stone will right. be left on another. Seventy A.D. Seventy A.D. So again, prophecy 
in there. He's, he's, he's foretelling this, he's reiterating, reiterating that. Number five, they will need to persist in, uh, let's put the clock over here. They will need to persist in his word and not defect even when the circumstances don't appear to be going in the way they expected. Eventually their sorrow will, will turn to joy both in the short term after the resurrection and in the long term when he takes them to his kingdom. That's kind of wordy, <clears throat> but um, we've already kind of, again, this is, we've touched on this. But the main point I'm trying to make there, or that the Lord is trying to make here, and we see this especially in his prayer in chapter 17, is that up to now, he has been with them, right? He has called them, they walk with him, and, you know, and don't get the impression, you know, sometimes I think maybe we get the impression that that all 12 were always all the time around him 24-7. That probably was not always the case, okay? Uh, remember Peter, just to use one example, Peter has a family, right? He's married, and, and so he has responsibilities, and I don't think Jesus... Um, had a problem with, hey, you know, I've got, I really got to go home and I got to tend to this with my wife or something, you know. Um, uh, but the point is that for the most part, uh, during those three years, they leaned on him and they were with him and in his presence and they watched him and they listened to him. And he, what he says in these chapters here, especially to them in the command to love one another as I have loved you, he's going to also say, the Father sent me, so now I send you. Okay, and, and what he's saying is, I'm leaving, and you guys are going to have to fill the void. Where I have been protecting you as the shepherd, and I have been loving you, okay, you are now going to have to do that for one another. And you're not going to be alone, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Right? He's going to help you. He's going to put that, Romans 5, 5, God has put that same love that Jesus and the Father have, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, okay? And so he's going to enable us to, to, to obey and, and to obey that command and to love one another in his place. And this is, and then, then that's the first four chapters, 13 through 16. Then in chapter 17, his concern is that Father protect them. I, I don't, I ask that you, I don't ask you to take them out of the world but that you keep them what? From the evil one. In other words, again, we keep thinking world in this. You've got to think of when he says world in these five chapters, it's specifically aimed at that Jewish system. Okay? Not just the world in general, like the earth and the human systems. I keep wanting to apply that, and probably you do too when you read that, but you've got to, you've got to, it's very clear in the context, and I'll show that to us as we go through, that he's referring specifically to that Jewish system. So what he's saying is, I don't ask that you just completely yank them out of this Jewish system because there's still a lot of sheep there that, you know, uh, at Pentecost, there's 3,000 souls that come, and then there's more and more Jewish people, even in Jerusalem and Judea, up in Galilee and other places where he administered, who are, who are yet to be called through the apostles' testimony into the church, right? So what he's saying is don't, I, I ask that not that you take them completely out, but you keep them from the evil one. Who is even though he's judged at the cross and the system isn't going to be destroyed for another, you know, forty years or so, um, uh, he's still active there and he's going to be persecuting them. 
And so he prays to the Father, uh, uh, especially in these hours while he is unavailable, you know, dying for the sins of the world and buried. Protect them. Keep them. So that's what that's, those are the themes that really stood out to me. Any thoughts about that before uh, we hang out the new notes and start to dive into chapter 13? I think I may have enough. <laughs> My whole punch. Got a little missile on there, sorry. And one more for copies. How about that? Move my little marker here. Okay, I really I wrestled with what the title ought to be, but it kept coming back to the most obvious one, and that is um, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, really, because that's that is so central to um, not just this text, but to the full upper room experience and the Last Supper and the Passover, and which, by the way, doesn't just isn't just in the upper, we call it the upper room discourse, but only about half of it is really in the upper room. The other half is, uh, best I can tell, either on the way as they're walking through the dark streets of Jerusalem, crossing the Brook Kidron and going to the to the Garden of Gethsemane, okay, uh, and, and also in the Garden. Uh, I think I think that, that the more I study it, the more I'm convinced that the Lord's Prayer this is what I like to call chapter 17, or call the high priestly prayer, uh, happens as part of that prayer which we read in the Gospels, right? You know, in the Gospels, other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, uh, they tell us about, you know, the Lord telling his disciples to watch and pray. Walk quiet, by the way. Pray that you not fall into temptation, right? Why? What's, what's the temptation? To abandon him, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's his concern. We get, again, we see that in these chapters as well. But he's going to pray for the Father to protect them. But then he's going to take three disciples a little further, and he's going to go and, and, and fall on his face and, and cry and so on. Just before all of that, though, I believe is where chapter 17 comes in, where they hear him pray that priestly prayer of intercession to the Father on their behalf and on ours as well. And on his. So he prays for himself, the disciples, and for us. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Let's dig into this. Um, Luke 22, 25-27, I quoted there at the top to kind of set the tone. We looked at this this last time, right, in the continuity. Um, and, and just before this, it says that a dispute broke out among them as to who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Okay. And and so this is Jesus' response. And I'm, I'm reiterating this, and especially that statement in bold, to kind of set the tone for what we're looking at now. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, 
and those in authority over them are called benefactors, right? We do that today, right? You've got, I was listening to a, uh, uh, an interview with a lady who's uh, Latin American, and, she, and her concern is, um, I think she's uh, Guatemalan, and uh, she's so concerned about all of these little, you know, uh, tin pan uh, dictators that come and go down there, and they're all they all march under the banner of socialism in some form or fashion, right? And uh, what's so what's so odd about it, and so funny, and not just not to pick on Central and South America because this is true in you know all over history today and our past, right? You've got all these these you know self-absorbed leaders who really abuse the people and enrich themselves at the expense of the people, right? But they put themselves forward as benefactors, right? As 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 I'm the I'm the hero of the people. I'm here to help you, you know, type thing. And and so I just I just make that comment there that that's still true to this day, right? Those in authority, they lord it over everybody, but they call themselves benefactors. Let's let's continue reading. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And then I think right after saying that, he gets up and he starts to wash their feet. Love gives. In our previous study, we noted that the love of God is the soil from which the upper room discourse grows. It is all through this final lesson from Jesus to his little flock of prideful, self-seeking disciples. That's where my typo is. I, I only put 13.1 in there, and I intended to put more, more verses in there, but uh, you, probably, you have those from your, your last set of notes. The 13.1 especially is, is the one that, that really sets out. As we know from the combined gospel and historical accounts, Jerusalem was swelling with millions of devoted, God-fearing people who had, um, who had hope that God's kingdom was going to come soon and were eagerly curious about uh, Jesus who had been ministering for three years. I almost put in there God-fearing Jew, Jews, but remember John's reminded us in the prior chapter that there were um, uh, Greek proselytes, right, who had come as well. So, so this is not just this is not just uh, Jewish people by by birth. It's, these are God-fearing people who are who whom the Lord is calling to Himself from all kinds of places. The news of his many miracles, especially the raising of Lazarus, witnessed by many prominent and important Jews, combined with his growing reputation of being a serious problem for the corrupt and despised Jewish leadership, caused a very large crowd to assemble and welcome him into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan when the Passover lambs were being selected. The people were ready for their king or so it seemed to the disciples and to the Pharisees, and welcomed him with shouts about the one who comes to save them in the name of the Lord. As we enter his 
this upper room four days later, the disciples are still buzzing with excitement. They are sure that any day now their Lord and Messiah will step forward to destroy the enemies of God and of his people and usher in the golden age of the kingdom of heaven where material prosperity never ends and Israel finally sees the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to their fathers. At the start of the Passover meal, everyone is too busy with his own self-importance to humble himself to the lowest level of foot washing. Their heads were filled with visions of being served by others and their hearts filled with pride that they were worthy of it because of their faithfulness to Jesus. However, when we leave the upper room, the mood is very different. Something has happened to turn their giddy emotions, uh, to check their giddy emotions and turn them into sorrow. This foot washing seems to be that turning point in the supper where things begin to take on a very different direction. And it begins to dawn on the disciples as circumstances may be going in a very unexpected and dark direction. What a powerful, impactful, life-changing moment it was when the Lord of glory, the Holy One sent by the Father from the regions infinite beyond the touch of time, gently rebukes the disciples for their argument about who was the greatest among them, then silently rises from the supper table, lays aside the robes of teacher and master, puts on the towel of a common slave, pours some of the purification water that had been, pure, been provided for the Passover feast into a basin and kneels down before each of the disciples to wash their feet. John's account, the only gospel to tell us this happened, is so vivid that we feel as if we are present in the room in that holy moment. Here is the one before whom Moses removed his sandals because he stood on holy ground. Here is the one that John the Baptist said he was not worthy to stoop down and take off his sandals. Here is the one that God the Father promises to make all his enemies a footstool for his feet. Here is the one whose feet and hands will be pierced in a few hours as he dies for the sins of those men. We can only speculate that it must have been quiet in the room, with the only sounds being those of the Lord pouring the water and washing their feet. Not until Peter broke the mood do we get some insight through his words that they were ashamed and embarrassed that he has to do this menial task. Peter's words reveal that they still had no idea what he had been sent to do, nor that God was about to open the kingdom invitation to all people everywhere who put their faith in Jesus. This moment of the foot washing is so powerful, not because of the act itself, but because of the example that Jesus is setting for them. We are not left to speculate endlessly about why he did this. He tells us in no uncertain terms that this is yet another example from him of the type of kingdom that God wants. Instead of bellowing commands for his people to love one another and practice righteousness from a distant throne in heaven, God the Son takes on human nature, becomes one of us, and keeps descending lower and lower to the point of an undeserved death on a cross in full love for and obedience to his Father. He gives the command to love one another, but with the added standard of his example. This is why decades later, John would call it both an old and new command. It's a little puzzling. 
set of verses there if you pondered over that, okay? It is the timeless love of God. The Apostle Paul captures these amazing truths in several places. In Romans 5.8, we learn that the love of God is most clearly seen in the gift of redemption for his enemies. Remember, we looked at that, mm. right? That God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yes, Christ died for us, right? We see God's love in the effect of the cross, his love for sinners. Nobody loves like God. Nobody sacrifices their most precious and loved people for their enemies except for God. Paul also captures this concept that love is seen in its effects in 1 Corinthians 13, where love's importance and its effects are laid out clearly, right? Paul says there, you know, if I do all this wonderful stuff, but I don't have love, it, what, profits me nothing. It's, it's, if I have the gift of prophecy of tongues, it's just, it, but I don't have it, I don't do it in love, it's just like a, a clanging cymbal, you know, stumbling down the stairs. It's meaningless. It doesn't have it. It doesn't really have it. It may be fun in the moment, but it doesn't really impact lives. It doesn't change lives. Finally, Paul applies this powerful example of the self-sacrificing love of God that expresses itself in lavish, unreserved, unmitigated giving to us in Philippians 2, 1 through 18. Um, so let's take a second and let's read that, okay? I, I quoted here in part, this is verses 3 through 11, but the whole, the whole section is, is worth taking a few minutes for us to read this morning, okay? So you want to turn in your Bibles there, okay? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 2. One through eighteen. Philippians two, one through eighteen. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from what? Love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same what? Mind. Okay. Well, what mind is that, Paul? No, keep reading. That's the same love. Having the same love. Interesting that he doesn't connect this love with emotion, but rather with decision. Because decision is, that's what's in, in view here with the use of mind, that you decide to love. Because that's what God did, right? That's again, Paul makes that same argument in Romans. That that's where Romans five, Romans five eight, of course, is not happening in a vacuum. It's all the verses that come before that, in which Paul is saying that what God, that that all the human race, the entire human race, both Jew and Gentile alike, are are all born in Adam with this nature of sin, and that what God feels. When he looks at you before Christ, okay, when he looks at you as a sinner in your original state, 
what he feels is fury. It's a strong Greek word that Paul uses there in Romans to describe that, okay? The strongest Greek word that, that they have. That's why I like to translate it. It's often translated wrath, but fury is probably a closer English word to what it's really saying, okay? But the good news, that's the bad news. <laughs> the good news is he responds in love. But God demonstrates his own kind of love and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he provides a righteousness accomplished by Christ to everyone who puts their faith in Christ, right? So your sins are covered and you also have the righteousness of, of Christ applied to you. And it has nothing to do with how he feels about you. Okay? And what Paul is saying here is that's the same kind of love we are called to. Make my joy by... Um, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one, he says it again, mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Show hands of everybody who's good at that. <laughs> Hey, Pete. So, yes. Your sins are not covered, right? They're paid. That's true. That's right. Big okay. difference, man. There's a big difference. I'm glad they're not covered. Amen. Because they could at some point be uncovered. Right. Right. Good, good point, brother. Um, some of the trends, I think it's an NIV that says, um, uh, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, Consider others better than yourselves. Some years ago, the Lord convicted me of this, just this very simple, and I want to put this out before you, just this very simple expose of your pride. My pride. Okay. Could be, could be you too. When you become a believer... You know, before Christ, you're all about yourself, right? And you, you please yourself, and it's it's outward. And some people are better at, at hiding it than others, but pretty much everybody, it's, it's out there. You can see it. After Christ, you know, you, you you learn about the humble love of the Lord, right? And how he served his disciples and foot washing and all those other things. And you begin to say, oh, okay, so we're supposed to serve each other. So you can start serving in the church, and you can, and we have we have a small church, but everybody serves. There's a place here, and everybody's working, and we serve one another. That's the elementary school level. The graduate level, where God really wants to get us, is not just that you're serving one another outwardly, but that you're serving one another from a place of humility. So. The Lord challenged me with this. Am I, am I serving up or am I serving down? Am I serving someone else from a position of, in my mind, superiority to them? Or am I following what Paul says here? Am I serving up to them? You know, considering them better than myself. Putting their needs ahead of me. And, and not, not with this mix. And, and that has completely changed my view of myself and my service. Because I struggle with that. 
I can serve on the outside and I can have a nice smile and oh it's fine, no problem. You sure Pete? Yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine, no problem. But still inside there's this pride, right? Look at me, look at you know, and I'm setting a good example for that person. Well they you know, I hope they see both of me. You know what I'm saying? Right? Come on now. Are you serving up or are you serving down? Paul says here, we to have that mind of Christ who didn't look down on his disciples as he's washing their feet. He served up to them. He didn't serve down to them. Even though he is the Lord of glory, the eternal God, right? The word of God that, Paul, or that John opens his gospel with from eternity past, who was there and all things are made through him and he's equal with God the Father, right? <clears throat> Paul says he thought nothing of that of that equality and set it aside and became a, a, a servant and humbled himself not just outwardly but inwardly because God is looking on the heart right and as believers we you know we got to get to that graduate level not just serving because you know it's kind of the thing to do in Christian church and okay the Lord's watching so I got to do this but you still have a you still have a little bit of pride in there right and all this you know, but really serving up rather than down. So have this mind, uh, verse 4, um, that was verse 3. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so what Paul is, Paul is not saying, look, you are to do this at the exclusion of yourself, Right? If you do that, you know, okay, well, you know, I, I don't I don't sleep, I don't feed myself, I don't want, I mean, if you take it to a far enough extreme, you're going to actually become a burden to those that you're supposed to be serving, right? Because they're supposed to, we're supposed to be caring for each other's needs. You know, so Paul is saying is, is, you know, yes, continue looking out for yourself in, in the terms of, you know, please wash your body, <laughs> please, you know, get the sleep you need and dress yourself and feed yourself and and, and do what you can for yourself, but don't just let your life be only that, right? Don't, there's, there's, you're to be looking out for the needs of others in a way that you look out for yours. And serving them from this attitude, this inward attitude of serving up. Then here we go, here's the punch line, right? This is what I quote in the notes, verse five, the following, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's our example who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Everybody with me? Okay. <coughs> but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you hear the steps down, 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 down? See, when the Lord got down on his hands and knees to wash their feet, Peter thought, you can't, what are you doing down here, right? You can't get any, you shouldn't even be here. Just, you're the Lord and the Master, right? Peter thought that the Lord was had reached the lowest point. What Peter didn't understand, and what we need to understand, is that the Lord was still on his way down. He still hadn't reached the lowest point yet. He hadn't gone all the way to the cross yet. He was still on his way down. Okay? 
But I like this too, that he, he humbled himself. Here's a test of pride for you. When somebody insults you or says something or, or neglect, maybe they don't mean to, but they just neglectfully don't mention you when they're handing out praise or something like that, and you, you feel like it's justified, and well, why was I overlooked? Anytime you're humiliated, it, it means that you're not walking in, in humility. Because if you're humble, you can't be humiliated. The Lord was not humiliated in the maltreatment that he received from the time he was betrayed and arrested in the garden all the way to the cross. He was never humiliated. Really. Because he was already humble. He'd already humbled himself. He'd already submitted himself to the will of the Father. And that's the example we're to follow. After being found in human form, he humbled himself. It will be at the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. You hear the step up, steps up now, right? Uh, and, and, and given him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember, uh, did, did Peter learn this, this lesson? Oh, let me keep reading uh, to verse 18 here. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. I can't meet this standard, right? And neither can you. But thank God that he is doing it through us, right? We don't, we're not left alone to do this. He gives us the ability. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent. This is verse 15, uh, Ephesians, uh, sorry, Philippians 2. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse, twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. That's the whole context of what Paul is talking about here. Christ is our example of this. And back to our notes, and we'll finish up here with this. In this poetic statement, so that, that little statement in there in your notes, uh, that's in italics there, okay? Um, in this poetic statement, which many scholars think are the words of an early Christian creed possibly put to music, this truth of the love of God seen in the extent of its giving is held up as the standard by which all of God's people are to be known. We are marked as the odd people who love everyone just as our Lord and Savior does. Like him, we are uh, we are to, uh, mistake there. We are to walk the way of the cross. Okay? The paradoxical truth that the way up is down. Okay? Um, as we close, I've, I've asked Dave to queue up. I, I put a little um, YouTube video here. Um, you would go ahead and throw that up on the screen and get that ready. Uh, Michael Card has a, a song called That Kind of Love that has really, really touched me and expresses this kind of love that God is calling us to in such a beautiful and poetic way. So I want to close 
by just letting that play, and then we'll finish the work. Heavenly Father, it's um, what a standard. What a standard you've held up. And I thank you that we don't have to walk that alone, that you give us not only your example in the Lord Jesus, but you've given us your Holy Spirit. You call us to this kind of love. And um, so help us, by your grace, for your glory, to walk this way. Challenge our hearts with this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.